We were walking our dog a few weeks ago and came upon an open house in our neighborhood. Uh, It is a two-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house um, and is listing at $1.2 million. Um, It is unlivable currently. Uh, We actually were able to walk inside. There was an open house, and it's just studs, like no walls, no plumbing, no electricity. There is actually a huge hole in the floorboard about the size of a large couch um, where you can see the dirt below. $1.2 million, it can be yours, you can live near us. Uh, The flyer said in bold letters across the top, location, location, location. Um, The realtor is trying hard. Um, Apparently, uh, when we talked with the uh, real estate agent, the owner bought it with plans to renovate it in his spare time. Um, Got the permits and everything, was gonna work on it on the weekend, but he couldn't swing it for whatever reason. And so he decided to cut his losses and sell. Um, And if you think about that experience for him, that must have been really hard, right? It's hard to quit something that you've already invested so much in. And so he put money, time, vision into this house. And when you do that, it feels like failure to let go. Uh, Behavioral economists call this feeling the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, Sunk costs are costs that you've already paid and can't get back. They're sunk. Um, And the sunk cost fallacy is the phenomenon whereby a person is reluctant to abandon a strategy or course of action because they have invested heavily in it, Uh, even when it's clear that abandonment would actually be more beneficial. Uh, And so we often continue with a project, not because it's still worthwhile, but because emotionally, uh, we don't want to lose the money, time, and effort we've put in it. Um, uh, Economists and psychologists have recognized that we would we're much more afraid of loss than we're attracted to gain. And so we would rather not lose something, even if we would gain more. Um, Even though uh, the costs are technically already lost, like you can't get them back, um, it just feels wasteful and even shameful uh, to leave something undone. We can all think of countless uh, situations where the sunk cost fallacy will tempt us, right? So we continue to watch TV series or read a book even though we don't like it, um, but we just feel like, man, we've already invested it, so we should finish. Um, we, uh, I have like waited for a train downtown whose arrival just keeps getting pushed back further and further, right? And you think to yourself, well, I've already waited this long, and so you, you stay. Um, Uh, More seriously, think about like a toxic work environment that you see no signs of changing, but you've been there. And so uh, the longer you stay, the less reluctant you are to leave. Uh, A toxic dating relationship that you hope without evidence uh, will suddenly change. We already know each other. I don't want to start over, right? Um, When things are hard, um, it's tough to give up. Um, But How do we know when to give up? At some point, we do need uh, to cash out, uh, to cut our losses, to pivot and change course. And so experts will tell us that the answer to this fallacy, um, if you're running a business or, or living life, is for us to only evaluate decisions, project strategies, based on future costs and benefits. So to always treat today as day one. Because past costs are in the past, they're done, they're sunk, you can't get them back. And so the only relevant question for decision making is what makes the most sense from this point moving forward. 
And so the past might be helpful as information. Um, it provides experience, but it shouldn't skew your decision. And so the question we should ask is, if somebody who wasn't emotionally invested subbed in for me, what would they do? What, what would they choose to do? With that in mind, I want to ask you a question. When might it be time for you to give up on Jesus? If today is day one, would you still choose Christian faith and devotion? Maybe you have a history of commitment. You've invested a lot into the truth of Christianity, emotionally, cognitively, relationally. Uh, you've made major life decisions. Um, based on your commitment to Christ. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe your family is Christian, but those are all sunk costs. Don't let the status quo skew today's commitment. And so if you're just thinking about today moving forward, should you still follow Christ or should you cut your losses and move on? Peter was writing to a church that was suffering a great deal because of their Christian faith. And their suffering would actually only worsen in the coming years uh, with the menace of Nero um, within a decade. Uh, First Peter was written to help them hold on to faith because surely they were struggling. Surely they were tempted to let go. Was Jesus still worth the cost? How can we know? They had invested so much already, took stands against their families and cities, suffered loss, been marginalized, dishonored, even beaten. And at what point would it make more sense for them to recant and go back to old ways? If we're to avoid the sunk cost fallacy, our answer depends entirely on the future. And 1 Peter 4, 7 begins, the end of all things is at hand. Christianity is a historical faith that is always looking back. And Peter has spent much of his letter grounding his encouragement in the past. The foreknowledge of God before time, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit. Even our own past, he talks about us being born again after hearing and receiving the good news of the gospel. And these are all things that have happened in the past, which are the ground of who we are and what we do. And yet the future is never far from Peter's mind. They were born again to a living hope, for a resurrection, a future inheritance kept in heaven for them. They have been predestined for present obedience and a future salvation. The obedience we talked about last week, avoiding the sins of their culture, it's not simply because it's wrong, though that is certainly there, but the reason for obedience is the future judgment of the Lord, is that he will require everyone to give an account. Their suffering is an investment in future glory. And so this church is not supposed to live in the past. They're supposed to shape everything they do based on the future guarantee of Christ. And in the same way, our discipleship should always be future-oriented. Even as we gather every Sunday to recount the work of Christ, past and present, let us remember the future to which God's work is always aiming, a future which cannot ultimately be found in this life, but only in the next. And that means no matter what has happened to me, no matter what has happened around me, if today is day one, a resurrected Jesus is always worth following. 
a returning Christ is always worth waiting for. Always. Even if it means doing the same things over and over and over again your whole life. Even if it means the church does the same general thing over again for millennia and for another thousand years. If Jesus is alive and if the gospel is true, any cost we pay today is always worth it. And in that way, it's kind of unfair, um, but the future return of Christ just puts its thumb on the scale for every decision we make. It's always skewed in his favor. Um, And I think when we don't have that long view, we are so easily discouraged, dismayed, confused by the immediate circumstances of our life. When we see that in some ways, flourishing is not available to us here and will not be available. But still, we can and should freshly choose Jesus every day of our life. The only reason to abandon faith in Christ would be the decided conviction that he is either dead or not coming back. Those are the only reasons. A lot of people um, aren't deciding to leave Jesus. Um, They're deciding to leave the specific tradition they grew up with. Um, And in truth, you may need to ask those questions. We, I may need to ask those questions. The specific details of our traditions and theologies might need to be deconstructed. Uh, If they are built on untruth or half-truths, if they're not reasonable in the light of Scripture, they need to be replaced. And so traditions that have calcified into traditionalism, which is idolatry, um, needs to be either redeemed and resurrected by Christ, if true, or replaced, if false. But the tradition of faith itself, the faith once delivered to all the saints, is always worth believing if Christ is alive and king. And the obedience which follows faith is always worth doing if Christ is alive and king. And so if you find yourself wrestling with faith in light of your circumstances, the failure of your tradition, the reality of the world, ask yourself, is Christ alive? Is he king? And is he coming back? When you are reconsidering whether discipleship is worth it, it's not leading to anything like present flourishing, and you're wondering whether a Buddhist life or an agnostic life might be better, or even a loosely Christian but not organized religion kind of life, right? Ask yourself, is Christ alive? Is he king? Is he coming back? In today's text, Peter grounds their community's practice in Jesus' future coming. The end of all things is at hand. And that is such an exhaustive statement, right? Our suffering and our joys, all things, our gains and our losses, the end of nations and peoples, the end of economies and polities, all the things that so dominate our lives and attention and anxieties and affections will all be done with. And soon, right? The end of all things is at hand. And at that time, the true character, the end of all things, meaning the purpose, whether good or bad, worth much or worth little, will be revealed in the light of Christ, in the light of the returning Christ. And so ask yourself, what are the things that concern you, that dominate your thinking, that worry you, that occupy your time? When the Bible says all things, what does the Holy Spirit bring to mind for you? 
Remember 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of that thing, the purpose of all things is at hand. And so the end of that decision, the end of that career, the end of that grief, the end of that hope, the end of that person, the end of you, the end of us, the end of all things is near. And so if today is day one and some future tomorrow is the return of Christ, what should you do now? Set aside the sunk costs from the past, forget the strategies and plans and identities that you're investing in. If Christ is returning any day, what should you do now? What's amazing to me about this passage with such a momentous future hanging over the church's life, Peter encourages these Christians to pursue like a, a pretty mundane list of obediences. And you could easily see him challenging the church to say, take some drastic course of action in light of Christ's return. Man, he's coming any day, revolt, retreat to the wilderness, quit your job, just wait, but and maybe that's what you're feeling right now. Maybe that is the conviction that God is bringing, that that's the decision that you need to make is some drastic change. You've overinvested in something that in light of the gospel is not worth continuing and you just need to cut and run. I've had moments of that in my own life and I've been thankful for those moments. And so maybe that's where you are, making a hard decision for a better future, an eternal future. But that's not really the heart of this passage right? These people have already done that when they first chose to follow Jesus. And so what he is asking them to do is just really, really normal, everyday things. What does Peter encourage? First Peter 4, 7 through 11, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In this paragraph, there are four things that our church should do in light of the return of Christ. And none of them are revolutionary, but all of them are important. First, we should protect our prayer life. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If it's true that Christ is coming again, we must pray and protect prayer. Uh, John Piper wrote an article called The Early Church Prayer List. Um, and in it, he writes that prayer remains one of the great and glorious mysteries of the universe that the all-knowing, all-wise, all-sovereign God who should ordain to run his world, should ordain to run his world in response to our prayers is mind-boggling. But that is the uniform witness of scripture. God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Oh, do not neglect this amazing way of influencing nations and movements and institutions and churches and people's hearts, especially your own. And then Piper goes on to provide a pretty exhaustive list of prayers from the New Testament that we should echo. Um, and I, I, I printed it up for myself, and then it got buried um, because I was not sober-minded and protecting my prayer life, but I was able to find it buried in my desk. 
Um, but I'd like to read it to you, this list of prayers that he's just really gathered from Scripture. These are things that in the New Testament the church prayed for. Pray that God would exalt his name in the world. Pray that God would extend his kingdom in the world. Pray that the gospel would speed ahead and be honored. Pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would vindicate his people in their cause. Pray that God would save unbelievers. Pray that God would direct the use of the sword. Pray for boldness in proclamation. Pray for signs and wonders. Pray for the healing of wounded comrades. Pray for the healing of unbelievers. Pray for the casting out of demons. Pray for the raising of the dead. Pray that God would supply his troops with necessities. Pray for strategic wisdom. Pray that God would establish leadership in the outposts. Pray that God would send out reinforcements. Pray for the success of other missionaries. Pray for unity and harmony in the ranks. Pray for the encouragement of togetherness. Pray for a mind of discernment. Pray for a knowledge of God's will. Pray to know God better. Pray for power to comprehend the love of Christ. Pray for a deeper sense of assured hope. Pray for strength and endurance. Pray that your faith not be destroyed. Pray for greater faith. Pray that you might not fall into temptation. Pray that God would complete your good resolves. Pray that you would do good works. Pray for the forgiveness of your sins and pray for protection from the evil one. That's quite a list. And it makes sense then that such a prayer life requires that we be self-controlled and sober-minded. Right? We have to protect our prayer life. I am so easily distracted from prayer, but if Christ is alive, if he is king, if he's coming back, I must give myself to prayer, prayer like this. And so how will we discipline ourselves, our calendars, our appetites, so that we might be diligent in prayer? Uh, how will we shape our services and our time together as a church uh, in small groups so that we might be diligent in prayer? How will I stay sober throughout the day so that I remember to pray, that that's my first reaction? Uh, when we read awful news stories, um, like those from this week, man, did I pray more this week? Or was I not sober-minded in my reading of terrible stories? I forgot to pray. First, we must protect our prayer. Second, we must love one another. If Christ is king and coming back, we must love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. No Christian community is perfect yet, but because we believe that Christ is coming again to make us perfect, we persevere in love. Um, and so that your gracious love for me um, is in part your like, love for what I will become. Um, and so you're willing to wait. Uh, for that to happen. We hold on to each other, even through hurt. Uh, notice how Peter encourages us to love each other above all. Um, that is the highest priority for our church. Uh, more than being a perfect church, more than being a skilled church, more than being a successful church, a big church, right? Above all, be a loving church. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. What an important word. A multitude of sins. In any church, there is and will be a multitude of offense. 
personal sins into personal sins. And how do we survive that mess? We survive through love. Love washes away grit from the gears of life. It keeps the gears clean. It keeps life smooth. And so if there is no love, then our relationship doesn't stand a chance. It's going to seize up um, unless we forgive one another, unless we love one another, which was why we must, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. A third, verse 9, we must show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, This is an extension of Peter's call to love, whereas verse 8 has more to do with showing grace and mercy towards each other. Verse 9, to me, is more about the patience required for life together. And so gears don't just have to be clean to work. They have to work together, right? They can't operate at different speeds. They sort of, um, they have to spin together. Uh, They can't go in their own direction. And so for some of us, life together means that we have to move slower, then we would move. And for others, it means that we have to move a little faster uh, than what we uh, would do. Gears have to match. And Christian community takes time, intentionality. It requires sacrifice. And by hospitality, Peter doesn't only mean making room for people in your home, although that is certainly included here. Even in San Francisco, hospitality for most of us will include hosting people in our living space. Like that is involved um, in hospitality. Um, even as it is difficult in uh, the housing that many of us live in. Um, altogether, though, Peter is, is more making sure that we're in the habit of making room for people in our lives, right? Um, whether that be our spaces, our calendars, our pocketbooks, our weekly habits, our five-year plans, are we making room for others? How often do we pivot, flex, adjust from what I would choose to do so that I can host my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that a regular rhythm for you? Are you able to do it without grumbling, right? Without bitterness? We may start out really grateful for our citizens community, but over time we can tend toward grumbling. We resent the limits that a weekly commitment um, or a couple weekly commitments put on us. And it kind of, we get frustrated, we grumble. Right? We ask ourselves the questions I asked at the beginning. Is this still worth it? Is this relationship still worth it? Is this group still worth it? Wouldn't life be easier without having to consider so many other people if I could make my schedule without reference to anyone else? Notice how those questions are the same questions that uh, deconstructing people are asking about Jesus. They're very similar questions. And I don't think that's a coincidence because the church is the body of Christ. Right? And so an unwillingness to pivot and flex and host Christ's body will lead to an unwillingness to pivot and flex and host Christ himself. Peter, Peter is encouraging us in light of the coming end of all things to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And last, Peter encourages us to use our gifts. If showing hospitality in verse 9 is a more passive form of love, where I'm laying down my plans and prerogatives for others, using our gifts in verse 10 as a more active form of love, right? Where I'm leveraging my strengths uh, for the sake of others. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies as each has received a gift. That's such an important phrase, right? There is no one 
in the body of Christ who has not received a gift from God meant to serve others. All of us are gifted. And if Christ has risen, we should employ those gifts for the building of this church and the spread of his name. And we do this because we want to be good stewards of God's varied grace. That's another great phrase, God's varied grace. Uh, So often when we think of God's grace, we only think um, of the cross, um, which is the sort of ultimate, which is an ultimate gift. Um, but grace is, is just a word for gift. Like the, it, it's, we sort of have this whole theology behind it, but if, when we read it in scripture, it's really just talking about God's gift. Um, and so God has a variety of gifts that he gives. He does give forgiveness. Um, he does give reconciliation. He does adopt us. But then he also, in a varied way, sprinkles gifts among his people. God's grace is varied. He doesn't make us all the same, but has gifted each of us uniquely. Uh, Watching so many people serve in so many different ways is one of my favorite things about being a citizen's pastor. Um, Our church is made up of remarkably gifted people, uh, which all together highlight God's varied grace. And um, I just love the ways that it shows up. Um. In, in ways that perfectly match the person. Um, and so I, I've said this a few times. I don't, I don't know if I've said it from here, but um, I think it's just really wonderful uh, Crystal's interviews of new pe- of people. Um, just seeing that how it perfectly matches Crystal's. Uh, uh, she's getting her PhD in sociology. She does qualitative research. Like that's what she knows how to do, like is interview people. And just to see her take something and apply it to our church in such a beautiful way, it's a wonderful thing. Not anything that I would ever think of. I wouldn't think like, oh, we need to find somebody to do this activity. And yet God, like in his varied grace, like gifted citizens with this gift and she's leveraging it. Um, And so what are unique ways that each of us are gifted that we can bring that maybe aren't the sort of stock normal things? We do as a church have chores that we just have to do as a family together. Um, but what are the things that God has uniquely made you delight in? Like what has he made you passionate about? What skills has he given you? What do you love? What do you hate? Those are questions which sort of channel gifts. What limits has God placed on you that channel your stewardship? Uh, so that even our lift, our limits, uh, whatever they might be, are part of God's varied grace. It directs us in specific ways. Um, all of these, our strengths and weaknesses, our freedoms and limits, are expressions of God's kindness. And so if you're at a loss with that, I encourage you to seek out help from others. Um, particularly, I'd encourage you to reach out to Georgia, uh, one of our deacons, and she's been working and and excited about asset mapping our community. Like that's something that she's been working on, trying to figure out like, man, what are the gifts that we have um, here? And she's doing that with new members. Um, She met with the youth uh, recently and had them sort of fill out a survey about things that they wanna do. And and so that's been really uh, fun and beautiful as a parent to youth. Um, But I'd encourage you to ask her to help you too and say, hey, I'd love some of those tools to figure out like asset map my life. Like what are the assets that I have Um, that I can bring here. If all of uh, this list of four things sounds mundane, it's it's not rocket science, but it is glorious. 
um, devoting ourselves to prayer, to love, to hospitality, to using our speaking and serving gifts, when done in the name of Christ in anticipation of his return, it really is where heaven and earth meet. Um, It makes this community a beautiful thing uh, when we just patiently do these mundane uh, behaviors. Listen to how Peter describes our gifts at work in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As I'm reading it now, it kind of reminds me of Greek mythology, like oracles sort of reminds me of that. Um, It reminds me of like Hercules and, and, and these sort of like dynamic monstrous figures that were reserved for like a very few group of people, fictitious people even, so that people enjoy the stories. They they never imagined that they could be Hercules, that they could be the Oracle of Delphi. But Peter is applying this language to slaves, marginalized women and children, um, people who are small and insignificant. We do not know their names. We never will know their names until glory. And yet they are speaking as one who speaks oracles. They are serving with God's strength in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Um, I've I've appreciated the song. I think, Kevin, you introduced it, the is he worth it line. He is. Um, And it's just encouraged me like pretty regularly in hard seasons, like where you're just like, is he, is he worth this? He is, he is worth it. Obedience to Christ is always worth it. And so I just encourage you to ask yourself that question, not assume. So we have the like Sunday school, I kind of have the Sunday school answer default in my mind of like, yeah, he's worth it. Yeah, of course. But ask yourself, is he worth it? He is worth it. Investigate that question. Everything you do, everything we do that is done from faith in Christ is done as his hands and his feet, as his voice and power. We do it all in his name, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is amazing, an amazing privilege that we can walk among this city, the citizens of this city, and be the power of Christ, be the voice of God. Uh, Remember the beat-up house I was talking about earlier? This feels like a picture of me, right? On a weekly, sometimes daily basis, you feel like this house. No plumbing, no water, no walls. (laughs) Um, A big hole in the floor where you can see the dirt, right? Who in their right mind would ever invest in this place? We literally use the word condemned for places like this. And that was me, right? Condemned, unlivable, deserving to be torn down. And in so many ways, I am still a broken down house. 
And the only difference is that Jesus bought me and moved in. He paid way more than $1.2 million for this place and made it his home. And unlike the guy who decided to bail, Jesus promises that he'll never bail. It's so audacious how people wonder whether they should leave faith behind. Should not Christ leave us behind? Like, it's such a funny thing. Like, I think I'm going to leave Christ. He doesn't le- he's not leaving you. He should ask that question. He should be deconstructing us, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> um, but he won't. He won't. He knows 1 Peter 4 better than us, right? Jesus knows that the end of all things is near. And so he's self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of his prayers for us. He loves me earnestly, and his love covers multitudes upon multitudes of my sin. He is hospitable towards me without grumbling, and he directs all of God's varied gifts for my good. And so you might be looking at your life or faith or the church, and all you see is a broken down house. And that's the truth. And you're wondering, is it worth it? But what matters is that Jesus is here. Location, location, location. Right? Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. And even though there might be other houses, other faiths, other life paths, which are bigger and fancier, more modern and better looking, Jesus is not there. Those houses are built on sinking sand, and they will not last. The only sure thing is the house where Jesus is. So ask yourself, where does he live? Where is he at work? What is he doing? It won't be the nicest or the prettiest. It won't be the most popular or make the most sense. But rest assured, that is where you should be. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so grateful for your grace that you would invest in us. That you would purchase us at the cost of your blood. And commit to move in, to send your spirit, and to patiently, slowly, week in and week out, work on us to make us beautiful, to make us good and holy and worthy. We're not that yet, Um, but we will be because you are worthy. Father, would you give us strength to hold on to Christ, that there would be a conviction in our hearts, a deep conviction when when so many sub-questions are bothering us, are frustrating us, when there's so much despair and heartache, would we be firmly convinced, and would we encourage one another to ask, is Christ alive? Is Christ king? Is Christ coming back? And if the answer to those questions is yes, would you help us to hold fast and to commit to the mundane things of life? Being diligent in prayer, loving one another, earnestly showing hospitality without grumbling, 
using our gifts for your glory. Uh, We thank you for the privilege of doing that, and we ask uh, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.